Let's open our Bibles uh, to the book of James, again to the book of James. If you've not been with us, we've been uh, off and on through the weeks we've been going through this book, and we're now at the end of chapter 3. It's on page 1012 in these Bibles in the pews. Remind you that uh, James, as we have seen in these uh, three, almost three chapters, he's been describing what's true faith and what is false faith. And he says true faith is more than just words. And here he's going to talk about it's, it's also how we see wisdom. I'll begin reading in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's let's pray together. Our Father, in of ourselves we lack wisdom, or we hear things said around us by the world or even those in the church, and it, it sounds right, but it isn't, and we don't have the discernment at times to know the difference. So we pray you'd help us to grow in wisdom and even use this portion of your word toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen. True faith and false faith is what James has been describing. And he he says this in the previous chapters, that, that true faith is more than just words. It's more than just saying the right things, even if the right things are correct doctrine from the scriptures. True faith will show up in your faith, it will in your life, it will show up in your deeds, in your actions. When tested with trials, it will become more mature. True faith will result in a person not just being a listener or hearer of God's word, but also a doer of it. True faith does not show favoritism to others based on their clothes or their income. It seeks to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it offers more than just a hollow religious blessing. Then as we saw last week, if you were here, at the first part of the chapter, true faith will show up in the way we speak, particularly for those who teach uh, and the scrutiny that that brings, but also generally for all of us and how we use our tongues. Today, James addresses us with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? He likes questions about real life, some of the questions We've already seen, or has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? And for today, who is wise and understanding among you? We look for knowledgeable people today. If you, if you need some work done on your, your car or your house or something like that, 
If it's beyond you, then you search for someone with the knowledge to accomplish that. If, if your child is an athlete, you probably invest lots of time and money in trying to send him or her to sports camps to be trained by coaches that are knowledgeable. If you need uh, some type of operation, some type of surgery, you will look for the most knowledgeable and experienced and skilled surgeon whom you can find. But there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom, a great difference. Do you know the name? you remember the name Josh McDowell? Y'all remember that? Uh, Evidence that demands a verdict more than a carpenter and a variety of other books. Josh McDowell was on staff with camp at what then was known back in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now it's crew. And he was their national and international speaker on apologetics and defending the Christian faith. And he was schooled in what's called evidentialism. So he would travel, and he, he's one of the most traveled speakers in the world at that time, and he would travel and speak on various college campuses and in classrooms and give evidences for the Christian faith. Well, when I was a student, he, he came to the University of Alabama. He was brought there. We had months to prepare. And for some reason, I don't know why, I was chosen to be his liaison to accompany him when he would speak in classes, in, in the classroom to students. So I remember we were waiting outside of a classroom where he was going to address a large crowd of students. And we were in a hallway. I can still see it. And I'll tell you in a minute, I don't remember anything else except what I'm getting ready to tell you. And he was leaning against the wall in the hallway, staring down at his notes. And I was just standing there in the hall, and we were waiting. We weren't talking. And I made the comment about the professor. After a few moments of silence, I said, well, Professor so-and-so, I don't remember his name, Professor so-and-so is very intelligent. And Josh, we were on first-time first name basis by then, leaning against, looking at his notes, goes, what? What did you say? And I said, Professor so-and-so is real intelligent. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, he knows a lot. (laughs) He knows a lot of facts. He said, having knowledge and being intelligent are not the same things. I don't remember anything else that happened after that. I can't recall the classroom. I don't remember the lecture. But I can promise you, intelligence and knowledge don't go together. You may be a person of vast learning. To quote the uh, junior higher, you may have more degrees than a thermometer. You may know a lot about a lot of subjects, but that does not make you wise. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament is one of the books of wisdom. We call them that. And it shows us that wisdom cannot be boiled down just to a little brief statement. If someone says, what is wisdom? The book of Proverbs says, well, give me 31 chapters and I'll describe it for you. In fact, chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs focuses on, it it personifies wisdom. And it says, wisdom calls out to all of us, oh foolish person, come, sit at my table. It's a great chapter. Just read chapter 8 today if you don't read the rest of Proverbs there how how it describes wisdom so proverbs the book describes wisdom as instruction and training understanding or insight wise dealing with others 
good sense for the practical realities of life. It also, wisdom also expresses shrewdness and discretion, and it describes it along the lines of knowledge and learning. Basically, what Proverbs and what James is saying, we must know truth before we can live truth, but if we're really wise, it will show up in our lives. So here, back to the question in verse 13. James writes, do you have wisdom? Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, just one more little reminder about the background. James is not writing to one particular church. He's writing to the Christians who were scattered all around the Mediterranean because of persecution that had dispersed them from the city of Jerusalem and in that area. Some are perhaps now in local churches, so he doesn't have one particular church in mind. Others are gathered and and not even organized into churches. He's writing to them, and he's talking about things among believers. So he's going to describe now true wisdom and false wisdom, or as he will describe it, wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And he's talking to people in the church. It's not just a general uh, essay on the philosophies of the world. It's things that you and I will hear in the church that sound right to us, but they're not from God. Do you have wisdom? Who among you is wise and understanding? Well, how do, how do we know how to answer that? If, if You may be sitting there thinking, well, I, I've had a little bit of wisdom, but I've done a lot of foolish things. I don't know if I'd say that I'm a wise person or not. I have some understanding in certain areas, other things I don't understand at all. So how will I know? Well, he tells us in the latter part of verse 13. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Are you wise? The answer is, tell me about your conduct. How do you live? It will show up in your actions. It will show up in the pattern of your life. Who is wise among you, believers? Well, now it's a very simple division here. He's going to talk about bad wisdom, the wisdom from below, and he's going to talk about the wisdom from above. What's the wisdom from below? This is what may appear to be very wise to the world. This is that which is said by people who are noted, quoted, promoted. They appear to exude success in their lives. They succeed at whatever they put their hand to. Their moral compass may not be anywhere close to the Bible but it doesn't seem to affect the success that they enjoy, maybe financially or in the eyes of others, but but they leave God out. These were in the church in James' day. And so James now drills down and he describes this type of wisdom with three words, and they get progressively worse. And the first is earthly or worldly. Worldliness in the Bible unlike today, is not identified with some material thing or some activity. To be worldly is basically to leave God out. One of our friends of our family years ago had their children in a uh, kindergarten uh, at Shallow Christian School. Does that name anything, mean anything to you up in Springdale, Arkansas? Gus Malzone was a high school coach there has nothing to do with my sermon. But um, he's Auburn's coach for, sorry, Kevin knew that, I think. All right. Anyway, they were in this kindergarten at this church school. Then they moved their kids to, uh, when they got to first grade, they went to a public school. And he told me, he said, I, I asked our son 
what do you find different here on your new school compared to your old school? And the son answered, well, they never talk about God here. And he and I both said, isn't that an interesting insight? Because that is the biblical definition of worldliness. Worldliness is just a philosophy of life that leaves God out. It may be moral. It may have certain rules you live by, but God doesn't play a part in it. God doesn't play a part in your decisions. If you say, I I decide where I go, what I do, how much I make, how I use that, uh, I make the decisions. No one else isn't telling me what to do. That is worldliness. It may not be criminal uh, activity. I'm not talking about that. That's just worldliness. So first, this wisdom is earthly or worldly. And here's how we can hear it and even quote it in the church. More than once, I have, a, have had a person look at me on the brink of making a totally destructive decision, and they will say, he or she will say, God does want me happy, doesn't he? That is worldliness. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. Not that way. Not to justify a very sinful decision. And and my response is, God wants you faithful. Uh, Or you hear today from clergy, God is a king, and we're to live as children of the king. We're to be rich and healthy and privileged. And on the surface, we might say, well, you know, that's true. Uh, We do serve the king. We are sons and daughters of the king. But then it takes on a very worldly nature. He says it's earthly. Second, he describes it as unspiritual, this wisdom from below. As opposed, as spiritual and unnatural, this is unspiritual, like in Corinthians, where the unspiritual means the unsaved, the sinful heart of man, and third, he says it's demonic, that the evil one is behind it. Now, that's scary, even in the church, definitely in the world even though it might sound right. Here's a very unnerving passage for me, and I hope it unnerves you a little bit. In Matthew 16, we are coming toward the end of the ministry of Jesus and where he has been telling his disciples that he's going to be killed, that he will suffer and die in Jerusalem. He's been using very cloaked language, figurative language. Well, by Matthew 16, he gets very specific, and all the figurative language is gone. So he says they are going to Jerusalem, he's with his disciples, that he will suffer many things at the hands of the chief priest and the scribes and so forth, and then he will be killed. He just spells it out for them. I am going to be killed there. And then Matthew records for us, and I quote, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now here here is Peter. Peter has been closely with Jesus for over two years. We know that one year into Jesus' public ministry, he called his disciples. They had been hearing him. Peter and the others were not strangers to Jesus. They had probably heard him teach and heard about him and seen him. 
But at the one-year mark, he chooses these 12 to be with him in a discipleship relationship. So for over two years, maybe two and a half years, Peter's been with him. He's been listening to him, and now he comes up and gives his opinion, and Jesus basically says, what you're saying is from the devil. Get behind me, Satan. If Peter can do it, we can do it, and think we are in the middle of God's will. So it's, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and even demonic, he says. And how, what does this result in? He says it in verse 14 and then repeats it again uh, in verse 16. When you pull back the curtain, when you see the wizard behind the curtain, what is the fruit of this is jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice. It may look and sound good on the outside. It may sound spiritual, but the fruit of it is anything but. Now the contrast. Now he's saying, let me tell you about wisdom from above. And rather than giving just this real quick little simple definition, he describes it with eight terms, eight words. The person with true wisdom will be, their conduct will display these eight character qualities to some degree. Or if they don't now, they will soon. And they're not in order of importance, but he says, uh, this wisdom is pure. There's a purity or cleanness before God and the truly wise person. This person promotes peace. This is not to be confused with compromise or peace at all cost. But some believers, if you hadn't figured it out yet, are anything but peaceable and give them enough time and they're always divisive. I have known of pastors that have a history when they go to churches, those churches split. Or at least they're warring factions by the time the pastor leaves. I don't think that's coincident. Some people just are divisive. Now they will say, I'm standing for truth. Everybody else are, are a bunch of cowards. Finally, somebody's standing for truth and that's me. And people divide into two camps and it, it, there's never peace, it's just division. They have a knack for stirring up dissension. I'd say that's not wise. Third, the person's, the, this wisdom is gentle. There's something about the zeal of new believers at, that just is contagious. Any healthy ministry, healthy church, should have new believers and older mature believers in it. And the zeal and excitement that comes from new believers, I was talking this week with a friend of mine who's a layman in a church in another state, and he told me, he said, we have seen six adult baptisms by profession this year. I said, six? He said, yeah. I said, in PCA standards, that's the great awakening. <laughs> he said, I know. I said, do people recognize what God is doing there? He said, nope, not at all. And so I, I quoted something I'd heard. I said, you know, you celebrate what you value and you value what you celebrate. Knowing the state he was in, I said, y'all need to throw a beer bust or something. I, just, I mean, he's in a real, he's in a state. You should throw a party then for this, for what happened. Anyway, he said, well, let me tell you something. He said, one of the persons who was baptized is an 84-year-old woman, and she was raised Jewish. She would never even look on a Christian symbol like a cross or something like that. She was taught that way. 
And she has come to faith in Christ this year. Well, he said, we have community groups on Sunday nights where we discuss the sermon from the, night, the morning before. And we were meeting last Sunday night, and there's, he said, there's some real politics going on in our church, and we're having to discuss some contentious issues, and that came up in the community group about what are we going to do about this. And she was listening, and finally she said, you know, I don't care about any of this stuff. This is not important. All I know is I've got Jesus, and nobody can take him away from me. 84-year-old woman. How refreshing is that? So there needs to be gentleness. And what can happen, though, as we grow in Christ, if we're not careful, we have quite the opposite. I was teaching a class some time ago, and there were several skeptics in the class, and one was particularly outspoken. And on this particular day, um, he was really attacking uh, the Christian faith and things I was teaching from the Bible. And I let it get away from me, and I got very angry. Now, it didn't come out in my words. I didn't do any. I didn't throw anything. I didn't, uh, you know, say something I shouldn't. But internally, I knew I had crossed some line in that classroom. And when I left there that day, I thought, this is not right. This is not right at all. Now, here's why I thought that. Because when Paul trained Timothy to be a pastor, he writes to him, in 2 Timothy, and he says, The Lord's servant, speaking now of him as a pastor, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, some people will confuse that with compromise. But to say, no, I, here's the truth, but not attack that person. That's, this is the... This is the philosophy behind the ministry of Rabbi Zacharias when they do apologetics. He said, our key verse is 1 Peter 3.14. You know that verse. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And we stop there, but the next phrase says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we can contend for the faith without being contentious. That's the third characteristic, gentle, also open to reason. True wisdom is open to discussion. It does not express itself in sound bites. It's just like a monologue. It does not relate to people. Hey, I've got this figured out. Why don't you just be quiet and listen? You'll learn something. You know, I've, I'm wise. I'm the one that knows. And, and we'll have a good relationship if you don't talk maybe for the next two or three years. And, and just listen to me. Uh, that's not true wisdom. I've received letters, as at not, not often, rarely, but occasionally letters. For those that are young, there was a time we took paper and we wrote it. Anyway, uh, on, on paper, in, in the mail, that were very condemning of something uh, in our church. It's usually I'm the, I'm the flashpoint for the church, so I get the letter. And immediately I look to the end of the letter and I'm looking for one thing. Can I talk to you about this? It's never there. So I've written back on occasion and said, look, well, I know I'm not one to do debates in print. I can't write that. I, I'd rather talk to somebody. So I say, thank you for coming. I will be glad to meet at your convenience to discuss any of this. No one's ever taken me up on that. What are you saying, Chip? I'm just saying it doesn't appear to be open to reason. 
Maybe there are other reasons, and I don't want to impute motives, but I think if true wisdom is open, let's talk about it. I might be wrong on this. You might be wrong on this. Let's sit down and, and work this out. I'll be glad to meet and talk about this. Let me move on. Full of mercy. Jesus showed mercy. Jesus commanded mercy. And that should be displayed in Christ-like wisdom. And the wisdom that's from above, it will display itself in in good fruits. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, so forth. It is impartial, he goes on to say. This person deals with others, a truly wise person, in a consistent manner, being unwavering. I want to show you something. You, you can't see this, so trust me. This says, is Christianity good for the world? And it's entitled Collision. Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson. You know, Christopher Hitchens was a very outspoken atheist, commentator, author, uh, who died of brain cancer a few years ago. Doug Wilson is a pastor in Moscow, Idaho. And after... Christopher Hitchens had written a a book, How Christianity is Bad for the World, they began a series of public debates on that subject. And this is a documentary made by a well-known Hollywood producer, so it's very well done. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube, and I'd urge you to do that, Collision. And it shows it's them debating on a variety of college campuses and before television audiences and so forth. And they both are um, very sharp-witted, very humorous, very bright, and they take no prisoners when they would debate with one another. But what stood out to me, well, let me give you an idea. On the back, here's the quote from Christopher Hitchens. Christianity is a wicked cult, and it's high time we left it behind. And Doug Wilson says, there are two tenets of atheism. One, there is no God. Two, I hate him. Well, in the, in the video, you not only see their public debates, which are uh, strong, but they're not yelling at each other like what we see so much today. I mean, there's a, there's a give and take, but they're dealing with the issues. But then in private, you see and you can recognize the growing friendship between the two guys. And the honesty, they'll say, you know, I don't have an answer for that argument. Or Christopher Hitchens will say, look, the one that gets me is how the universe is fine-tuned. I just don't, I can't figure that out. After Christopher Hitchens died a few years ago of brain cancer, there was a story that kind of floated around that he had had a deathbed conversion. I don't know whether that was right or not. So they went to Douglas Wilson and said, can you tell us about this? And you know what he said? My friendship with Christopher Hitchens, in that friendship, we had many personal conversations, including right up to the end. They were personal conversations, and they're going to remain personal. I don't have anything to say. Good for him. He honored that friendship, even when his friend, his atheist friend, apparently, was gone. So there's impartiality. It's sincere. It's not hypocritical. Let me wrap this up. And then verse 18 just kind of summarizes and says... Unlike what you, what you see when you pull back the curtain for wisdom from beneath, which is jealousy and selfish ambition, this one, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'll conclude with just this thought. One of our goals is a local church. 
is to produce wise people, men, women, and children, that we all grow in wisdom as followers of Christ. Of course, only the Holy Spirit can do that. There's no technique. There's no three easy, three easy steps. We'll show you seven steps to wisdom. First, we must be at peace with God through faith in Christ. But then we know that God gives wisdom over time. There's no instantaneous sanctification in this area. And here's how I know that. When Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, when he wrote his Gospel account, the first two chapters are devoted to the birth narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus. Mark doesn't even address that. But Luke tells us about the angel coming to Mary, tells us about Elizabeth, tells us about her and Joseph fleeing the, the manger and so forth, and, and then Jesus being born. Then in chapter 2 of Luke, toward the end of the chapter, we have the account where at age 12, they take Jesus into Jerusalem, apparently a large caravan, and after a few days they leave and they realize the 12-year-old, 12 12 year Joseph and Mary, realize Jesus is not with them. They go back, they find him in the temple, he's asking questions of the teachers and he's amazing the teachers. The insight he has at age 12. Now from that account until he begins his public ministry, we know almost nothing. So from age 12 till about age 30 is silence. It's silence in the scriptures. We know he was a carpenter's son. We know during that time Joseph died. We know a number of other things because it's stated later after Jesus begins his public ministry. The only thing we know is Luke 2.52, one verse. And it summarizes that time after age 12 with this verse. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, if Jesus had to grow in wisdom, you and I will not attain it with the snap of the fingers. It is not instantaneous, but it is attainable. So let us pursue wisdom that's from above and not from below. So we pray together. Our Father, we are saturated with the wisdom of this world. We're saturated with a secular brand of Christianity. And often our values have been more shaped by that than we realize. But we thank you that through faith in Christ, we are adopted into your family of sons and daughters. We are grateful that your Holy Spirit dwells in us through that and is conforming us to the image of Christ. We pray you'd help us even as a local church to strip away things that are wisdom from below and that we would gravitate toward wisdom from above. Uh, help us, Lord. Many of us need particular wisdom in situations over the next few days. May you grant that through your people, through your word, through the unction of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.